Hey, Gimme Shelter listeners, this is Matt Levin, housing and data reporter with Cal Matters. Hope you're doing well. Liam and I, of course, Liam Dillon of the Los Angeles Times, who right now is sipping a Mai Tai somewhere on a beach in Santa Monica, I assume. Uh, we'd like to pass along, first and foremost, our thanks to everyone who rated and reviewed the podcast and subscribed to the podcast over the past couple weeks, as well as those of you who uh, gave us some shout outs on social media, thanking us for the podcast. We always say this, it is very heartening for us to hear that. It gives us the mojo to keep doing this and to you know forward your messages to our bosses and say, hey, see, people find value in this. We got something special for you this, this fortnight. You are about to hear a live debate that Liam and I moderated last week. Um, we were invited by the Southern California Association of Nonprofit Housing, or SCAMF, as the cool kids call it. They're kind of an umbrella group for nonprofit housing developers in, in the L.A. and San Diego areas. They were holding their annual conference last Friday at the beautiful downtown Marriott, which is really nice next to L.A. Live. And they asked us to moderate a conversation between Beverly Hills Mayor John Mirish and State Senator Scott Weiner. I really wanted to come up with some catchy name for this debate, but I couldn't think of anything, any synonym for fight that would blend alliteratively with Los Angeles. Basically, any synonym for fight that starts with an L. So the best I could come up with is the melee at the Marriott or the Donnybrook in downtown L.A., which are not as satisfactory as like the Thrill in Manila or something, but... Someone else has a better suggestion, tweet at me. Um, this was actually a pretty civil discussion, actually, with a lot of policy substance. Just to give you some more background on our debaters, uh, Senator Weiner, of course, is a major force in the state legislature for making it easier to build denser housing around California. Most controversially, he's the author of Senate Bill 50, a bill that would take away some zoning powers from California cities like Beverly Hills to allow for apartment buildings to be built around transit and in some cases not around transit. Mayor John Mirisch is one of the fiercest defenders of local control over housing decisions as mayor of Beverly Hills. Um, and he's also been one of the most vocal critics of SB 50. We talk about a lot of things here. We talk about SB 50, of course. We talk about single-family zoning. We talk about SoCal versus Northern California housing tensions, both in the legislature and elsewhere. And it, it this is it's good listening back to it. There's not a lot of histrionics. It's it's a pretty substantive debate. Uh, just a quick note: there's a couple points in the audio that uh, where Senator Weiner's Mike cuts out. They're very brief. It's not your phone. It's just what happened with the live recording of it. But you don't miss anything huge. The first voice you'll hear is Alan Greenlee. He's the executive director of SCAMF. Um, he's the guy that's introducing us and giving laudatory praise to the podcast. We thank him for that. We will be back in two weeks with a regular episode of Gimme Shelter. Uh, just a reminder, this upcoming Tuesday, both Liam and I will be in Los Angeles for a event that's free to the public, free, at the Milken Institute in Santa Monica, uh, focusing on housing and homelessness, both statewide in L.A. Liam and I will be interviewing Mayor Daryl Steinberg of Sacramento for another podcast and L.A. County Supervisor Mark Ridley-Thomas, the two of which are co-chairs on the governor's a statewide homelessness task force. There'll be other housing and homelessness panels in the morning and the afternoon. I will put um, registration details in the show notes. So come on out if you're in the LA area and you don't have to take the 10 across the city to come see us over in Santa Monica. Again, that is this Tuesday, November 5th. Uh, okay, without further ado, please enjoy the melee at the Marriott, the very civil melee at the Marriott, the debate between Beverly Hills Mayor John Mirisch and State Senator Scott Weiner. So this morning, we're going to do something that I think is really kind of cool. I was really excited about it when Jeanette and I were talking about it in the earlier spring. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to have a conversation about affordable housing. And it's going to be moderated by uh, Liam Dillon from the LA Times and Matt Levin from Cal Matters. And for those of you who have not discovered the podcast yet, there's this thing called the podcast, and you can get it on your phone, and you can listen to really cool things. And Matt and Liam do this show called Gimme Shelter, which covers... Oh, wow. That's nice. oh, yeah. That's thank, you. thank you. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> a warm round of indifference, is what that is. <laughs> I'm a housing geek. 
And I listen to that thing as it's often early. as possible because it's interesting as hell, and they break it down for us in a way that really makes sense. And uh, I'm still trying to figure out Sacramento, so hopefully Senator Weiner can help us figure that out today. But Matt and Liam do that a really good job of it. So if you're not listening, please start listening because it's really terrific. And our Matt and Liam are going to be talking with two really interesting people in the housing discussion today. And those people are the chairman of the Senate Housing Committee, Senator Scott Weiner from San Francisco. And Beverly Hills Mayor John Mirisch. Um, if you haven't heard uh, Mayor Mirrors talk about housing. He's a provocative and in innovative thinker. And Senator Weiner, obviously, as uh, chairman of the Housing Committee of the Senate, plays a really important role in our lives. I want to express my appreciation for all that you've done. It's really terrific. Uh, you guys may have heard of SB 50. That's a thing. It continues. I'm sure it'll be back next year. Okay. We like to call that the Transit-Oriented Communities Program here in Los Angeles. Uh, 20,000 units with 20% of those being affordable to extremely low-income people, all by the private sector with no subsidy dollars. So uh, we think it's a great idea. So I'm going to stop right, right then and there and uh, leave you with uh, Matt and Liam. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> well, thank you for having us, everyone. Uh, just by a quick show of hands, I know people are grabbing their coffee, and it's probably ideal that you get caffeinated for this. Uh, but how many people listen to the podcast? All right. So that means a lot of potential listeners in the audience. That's, That's great. great. Yeah. Yes. So just to give a little bit more background, we do it every two weeks. We talk about um, a lot of the housing issues that are probably very relevant to your line of work. and. Um, we try to make it relatively entertaining. We do our best in that regard. Yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, today we'll be talking about um, probably the lifeblood issue of the podcast, which is um, the tension between uh, the state and local governments over what to do to solve um, our housing affordability challenges. Um, Liam, do you want to kick us off with uh, our first question? Yeah, so I'm gonna, this question's for the, uh, the both of you. I'm going to let uh, Mayor Mirish answer first because he also wants to give some remarks about Beverly Hills. Uh, but I'd like to know from uh, both of you, what do you believe the root cause of California's housing affordability crisis is? Thank you. Uh, thanks so much. <laughs> and thank you, everyone, for allowing me to be here. I do want to briefly state, uh, give you a, a bit of background about Beverly Hills, because some of you may have been there, but there's so, still some people who think that it's just all about swimming pools and movie stars and hillbillies and that sort of thing. We're actually, what a lot of people don't know, 50, more than 50% of our residents are renters. 62% uh, of our residents live in multifamily housing. We have retained what is known as the missing middle. There hasn't been any downzoning the way that you've had in Oakland and other cities. And it's, from the very beginning, been a successful combination of residential, multifamily, commercial. Only 9% of our land is actually zoned for commercial. We've also recently instituted very robust rent stabilization rules, much stronger than what is now coming out of Sacramento. We were supportive, and we still are, of the elimination or the repeal of Costa-Hawkins and the Ellis Act. And we're also now working on developing very robust inclusionary housing programs and nexus fees. So we, we feel that there, there needs to be nuances when it comes to the housing discussion. Uh, we're, you, know, you can look at our density in various ways, uh, but we, we feel in general, nothing is so good, it's, it's not better, but it's a, we're, you know, we're a model. And for us, we look at ourselves, like most communities do, as Mayberry RFD. And on our good days, we are. On our bad days, we're Peyton Place in an Ibsen play with some Shakespeare thrown in. But th so are all communities. Now to Liam's question about what the root cause is, I think there are a number of causes, but I think income inequality is one of the largest causes, and I think a jobs housing imbalance. I think that's more of a cause than the lack of ultra-high density uh, near transit. Uh, from my perspective, 
its uh, jobs housing imbalance. And I will say in our city, as opposed to some other surrounding cities, we, we haven't added massive job centers that are creating 10,000 jobs, which actually do generate a need for housing. And I'm very much supportive of, in those situations, having cities that create the jobs housing imbalance have to address it. Uh, good morning, everyone, and thank you to SCAM for, uh, for having us here today. Uh, so, uh, of course, there are always, uh, there's never one cause of a problem as serious uh, as California's housing uh, mess. Uh, but the root cause of the explosive uh, cost of housing in California, which is causing people to live in their cars, causing kids not to be able to move back home to the communities where they grew up, forcing young families to leave the region or to leave the state entirely, uh, causing major displacement, uh, is that we have a massive, massive housing shortage at all income levels, at market rate, at low income, et cetera. And when you look at the numbers, I know there are a lot of people who like to dispute that we have a housing shortage because it means that they then can avoid maybe building in their community, uh, but the numbers don't lie. Uh, we have a housing shortage in California of 3.5 million homes, uh, and the major critique I've heard of the 3.5 million number is no, it's not 3.5 million, it's really 2.5 million. So gotcha, 2.5 million homes. Whether it's 2 million, 3 million, 3.5 million, it's huge. And to put that 3.5 million number in context, uh, that is equal to the housing shortage of the other, or approximately equal to the housing shortage of the other 49 states combined. When you look at homes per capita, taking the 50 states and taking the number of people who live in that state and compare it to the number of housing units in that state, and you have a ratio, California ranks 49 out of 50 states. Only Utah is lower because it has larger household sizes. And when you look at housing production in California, back in the late 50s, early 60s, when we were a state of about 15 million people, we were building about a quarter million to 330,000 homes per year. In now, a state almost three times as large, 40 million people, last year we built 77,000 new homes, and that number has been going down the last few years. So the numbers don't lie, we have a massive housing shortage at all income levels. Um, so both of you have some pretty strong opinions about single-family only zoning. Um, I'm wondering uh, if each of you could respond to this. Uh, should single-family only zoning exist, and why or why not? And let's start with you, John. Well, I, I think it's a lifestyle choice. I, I think absolutely it should exist if that's what people want in their community. If they don't, then it shouldn't be forced on them. But I. I mean, studies show that something like 80% of Americans, if given a choice, want to live in a single-family house. So we should take that fact and we should recognize it. Uh, I don't see a problem with it. I, I think that you have an area like Southern California, which is very unique. Southern California is not monocentric. It's polycentric. And so there is room for everything within Southern California, from ultra-dense Manhattan-style living for those who like it, to cities not like Beverly Hills that are completely single-family zoned. As pointed out, Beverly Hills, 62% of our residents live in multifamily, but that's what makes Southern California so unique. It's diverse communities. And people should be able to define their communities how they want. Some people love Manhattan-style living. Maybe that changes as they get older. And some people like single-family housing. And some people who like Manhattan-style living, as said, eventually decide they want it. We should offer choices. And we should be tolerant. I mean, for me, community is an extension of family, an extension of people. It's how we connect ourselves. And we should be tolerant towards communities, not bad actors, but communities who are inclusive and welcoming in the same way that we are tolerant towards individuals and should be towards individuals. And uh, I, you know, this, this narrative, and I'm not saying that Scott Weiner is one who's behind it, but there are some people who say that single-family housing is inherently racist and immoral, and I, I certainly don't think that. There were, in fact, in the past, covenants and redlining, and we know all about that. And in fact, in my city, Beverly Hills, which is now a uh, majority-minority city, we bought a piece of property recently that said, guess what? 
Jews and African Americans can't own it. Well, we're a majority of Jewish people now, so thank goodness we're able to overcome that. And there are other areas, by the way, where the median household income is at a parity with Beverly Hills, like Ladera Heights, where there are a lot of African Americans. This is something that I think single family housing appeals to all stripes of people. And what we should do, if anything, is we should allow people, we should recognize people's lifestyles choices. Because if we don't, then we literally are forcing them to drive further to pursue that lifestyle. And I think this is an area where the Senator and I disagree. Yeah, so <clears throat> um, I, I grew up in a single family home. I, I have nothing against single family homes. And I think that. Uh, sometimes this debate gets portrayed as you either love single-family homes or you want to get rid of single-family homes. There, I'm sure there are people who want to get rid of single-family homes. I'm, I'm not one of them. Uh, and I think there are a lot of people who want to live in single-family homes. But the problem is, in terms of choice, uh, in big swaths of Los Angeles and big swaths of the Bay Area, living in a single-family home is not, or in terms particularly owning one, is not an option for a large majority of people because there is no way they will ever be able to afford it. So, when, so, and, and so that if they want that single family home, they have to move further and further and further away and we create super commuters. Uh, and so this, from my perspective, this is not about should we or should we not have single family homes. We're always gonna have single family homes. There's a major market for it. A lot of people do want it and if they can afford it, they'll have one. Uh, the question is, should we be mandating only single-family homes? That's what this is about. That's what single-family home zoning is. Getting rid of single-family home zoning, which frankly we've already done in California, but getting rid of single-family home zoning is not about banning single-family homes. It's about no longer mandating single-family homes. And in up to 75% of the residentially zoned landmass in California, the only home you're allowed, the only kind of housing you can build is a single family. Now you can put ADUs in it, and that's great, but it's single family zoned, and that means that even a small to mid-sized apartment building is banned. That means affordable housing is banned, because it's exceptionally rare that you will build subsidized affordable housing in the form of single family homes. So this isn't about getting rid of single family homes. This is about saying that, yes, single-family homes are terrific, but we should also allow apartment buildings. And even though single-family home zoning 100 years ago was created uh, right after the U.S. Supreme Court struck down racial zoning, uh, today, even though I don't believe that people who defend single-family zoning are trying to keep diversity out of their community, I don't think that that's their intent in any respect, the effect of single-family zoning in many communities, particularly in LA and in the Bay Area, is to exacerbate income and race segregation because it's basically saying, if you can't afford a single-family home in this community, then there's no place for you in this community. So we're talking about having choice and diversity, diversity of housing, having both single-family and multi-unit, both market rate, subsidized for low income, mixed income, all of it, and that's how you build, I think, the strongest and most diverse communities. So, so I want to push a little on the senator for this question. It's SB 50, the bill that would uh, increase density in single-family areas, allow for fourplexes um, in most areas, uh, and also allow for a higher density mid-rise apartments near transit and, um, and near job centers. Uh, there was some concern, uh, has been for over uh, the last couple years from folks living in uh, lower income communities, as South LA being a, a good example, uh, worried that um, folks there would be priced out um, or gentrified or displaced by uh, this, the, the implications of this bill were it to pass. So what would something like your bill do specifically for lower income residents who were looking for a place to live? Sure, and thank you for that question because it's a very important question. And we have been, uh, and, and actually one, one of the critiques of the predecessor to SB 50, SB 827, um, and, it was a, and it was a critique that had merit, <clears throat> was that SB 827 focused exclusively on transit areas around public transportation, which disproportionately, when you look at the geography, included lower income areas, because historically, um, not all, but many higher income areas have kept transit out. 
Uh, and so we responded to that working with equity advocates <clears throat> statewide, but primarily in Los Angeles, um, to include our high opportunity or job rich um, areas, uh, areas that may not have the best transit, but they have a lot of jobs, and including that in the bill to try to increase the geographic equity of the bill. Um, we also worked on, I'm very sensitive to trying to avoid displacement. The la you know, adding new housing, it needs to be additive, not replacing the people who are already there. Uh, and that is critically important, and we worked for the last, really, year and a half on including provisions in the bill to accomplish that. Uh, first, we uh, included in SB 50 some of the strongest tenant protections in existence in state law uh, that you, uh, if, a, if a tenant has lived on the property at any point in the last seven years, uh, you cannot get a demolition permit to build an SB 50 project, even if the city at issue would issue the permit. S state law would override that and say you cannot do it. If there's been an Ellis, <clears throat> excuse me, an Ellis Act eviction, in the last 15 years on the property, that parcel is not eligible <clears throat> for use uh, as an SB 50 uh, project. Uh, in addition, we uh, have a provision about what we call sensitive communities, uh, communities that are lower in uh, concentration of lower income residents at risk of gentrification and displacement, uh, where there will be a five-year delayed implementation in uh, those communities, and they will have some more flexibility coming out of those five uh, years. Uh, and then we also included robust inclusionary requirements uh, in the bill. Uh, and so local inclusionary uh, will apply, but we set a baseline minimum. So for communities that have no inclusionary or very low inclusionary, uh, we will set a baseline. And on top of all of that, uh, the bill does not in any way change local efforts to reduce displacement. It doesn't override any local demolition restrictions. So if the city of Los Angeles wants to enact stronger demolition uh, protections, uh, then it can, and the bill will not override it. Uh, the bill does not change any renter protections. Uh, so uh, we've, we've included strong protections in the bill, and the bill does not override any other protections that may exist. So, John, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about your opposition to SB 50. Well, well I, I also wanted to ask, too, and I feel like you probably would have anticipated this question. We're going to ask about the number. So, Beverly Hills has a um, housing requirement from the state of building three units. Rena, uh, you're talking. Exactly. Um, over an eight-year period. That's going to change, but... Oh, yeah. Significantly. Uh, well, do you think that's the right number? So let me get to the Rena first, and then I'd like to address the notion of SB 50. Rena's based, or was based, on growth and vacancy rates. Beverly Hills has had a stable population at about 35,000 for 60 years. Uh, we uh, said, not that this is an issue for, for Rena, but it is for responsibility. We haven't added major job growth centers like Culver City or Santa Monica. So we've been stable. And I, I guess the question is, do you, do, does someone, how does someone look at growth? Is there, are there limits to growth? I mean, I have several books here. I believe there are. And so I feel that there's more that we can do and we're working on it. Uh, but I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with stability. In fact, st stability is literally embedded in the word sustainability. Um, so the way you figured it out was based on growth, and we hadn't grown, and that stability, I think, is not a bad thing. I mean, we can come to how they're figuring out the new figures because I've been attending all of the SCAG meetings on that as well. Uh, I do, however, believe that if a community adds significant job centers, you know, there's the Cupertino and all of that, that they should be required to solve that before they make a CEQA statement of overriding considerations. And in fact, I wrote an article in 48 Hills about a year ago or a year and a half ago saying we should strengthen CEQA to close that loophole so that cities can't do it. But now I'll get to SB 50. I think our objection is based on what Scott Weiner says is the need for um, housing units at all levels. Because I don't perceive, for example, in our community that we need luxury. Uh, apartments or market rate. I think we do need affordable. I think when you look at San Francisco, and let's remember, LA, San Francisco, and San Jose, in that order, are already the most dense urban areas in the US. New York's only number four. We're already the most dense urban areas in the US. Um, I don't think, as said, that it's going to be helped by building more um, luxury housing. Let me give you an example. San Francisco just did a report that said that they 
built approximately 97% of the luxury or upscale housing units that they'd need. They do very well because they have inclusionary housing requirements, but they're only building about 39% of the affordable housing they need. But when it comes to middle class housing in the middle, it's only 15%. So my feeling is, is that a couple of things. One is that any bill, an SB 50 or whatever you want to do to address the housing um, challenges should address affordability. And I don't think that SB 50 does that enough. I, I think that what it takes is, is a market-based approach, and yes, there's some inclusionary elements, but that the market is somehow going to solve it. And I think what you do is actually more important because I don't think it recognizes that you compete not necessarily with each other, but you compete with for-profit developers. And in fact, as Alan Greenlee knows, I've, I've outlined 14 specific points about what we can do to specifically help affordable housing developers. I think, unfortunately, SB 50 leads to a commoditization of, um, of housing. And, you know, we're against for-profit universities, we're against for-profit hospitals, we're against for-profit prisons. I hope most of us are. I think affordable housing should be strictly nonprofit along those lines. And I think it unfortunately, intended or not, empowers Wall Street, it commoditizes housing. And you guys, you know, give me shelter. Remember that good old line from that Keith Richards hit, Wall Street, uh, Mad Bull lost its way. Well, I, I think the last thing we want to do <laughs> is put Wall Street in control of our housing policy any more than we put Philip Morris in control of tobacco policy. Can I respond to that? Sure. Sure, sure, sure. sure. So, but first of all, thank you for the yeah, Rolling Stone. We appreciate the appreciate that. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, now putting pressure on me, I have to think of something. <laughs> Another um, Keith Richards. Yeah. Um, so th those were interesting comments, and I, I want to thank the, the mayor for his candor, uh, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm going to try to interpret what he just said, and he'll correct me if I'm misinterpreting it, please. Um, that that is an argument against in favor of on, <clears throat> only building, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, subsidized, deed-restricted, affordable housing. Uh, that, an argument and not building any sort of market rate or privately produced housing. That is absolutely a perfectly, you know, legitimate part of the debate. We could. I'm a supporter of public housing, social housing, deed-restricted affordable housing, whatever you want to call it. I think it's incredibly important. Uh, but the idea that we're going to solve our housing crisis in the millions of homes by saying that we're only going to build deed-restricted, subsidized, affordable units, um, I don't think is reality. Uh, and the reality is uh, that <clears throat> something like 85 to maybe 90 percent of low-income people in California live in market-rate housing. For the middle class, I suspect it's probably 99.9%. I'm, I'm speculating, but I think I'm probably not far off. Uh, and so the idea that you know, even if we dramatically increase our investment in subsidized, deed-restricted affordable housing, which I support doing, and tripled our housing stock of affordable uh, subsidized units, public housing, et cetera, um, something like two-thirds of low-income people in California would still live in market-rate housing, and nearly all middle-income people would. So to argue that we should only build these subsidized, deed-restricted affordable units, that that's the only thing that we should build, is an argument against building enough housing for Californians, because our, our shortage is in the millions. And that is also a way of telling the middle class to get out that there's nothing for you here. Uh, and so to, to compare privately produced housing, which houses the vast majority of Californians, to compare that to private universities or to Philip Morris, um, I don't think that is even remotely a valid comparison. That's the housing that we, almost all of us, live in. Someone builds it. And yes, they made money when they built it. And you, you could make the argument that Martin Shkreli made money saving a life with a drug, where, which, you know, it's, to me, I said, you want to focus on affordability, which is the issue, then you focus on affordability. Now, I'm not saying we should eliminate market rate housing. I'm just saying don't do anything to give them advantages over affordable housing producers. The affordable housing, they can't, you can't compete on a level playing field. Your goal is to produce housing. The goal of a for-profit developer is to use housing to create profits. There is a huge difference. Well, ex ex except also when you limit 
75, up to 75% of Californians are only single-family homes, you're, you are saying that affordable housing nonprofit developers are not welcome to build there. What SB 50 will do, it will open up a massive number of parcels to be parcels that are now available for multi-unit housing, including affordable housing that is now strictly off limits to nonprofit developers because it's only zoned for. But if they're companies. competing with for profits, they're not, never going to get the. That's the reality. John, so I'm, I, I actually I like this. I want to keep it going, but I but I want to keep but I want to add something to the to the table here that I want you to you to address. So uh, right now in the Valley uh, Chatsworth area, there is a homeless housing project that uh, is being in the Chatsworth area in the Valley, a homeless housing project that is being opposed um, by a bunch of residents there. Um, despite the fact that there's funding for it. Uh, we see that also in the Venice area now in, in Los Angeles. And so, um, uh, you know, how can we be sure that local governments will allow for that kind of, you know, low-income housing or homeless housing in their backyards, even when there's funding available for it? Well, I think that's a good question. I think we need to make sure that projects that we do fit in with the communities. I, I, we're actually working to try and uh, we know that in our city, the, the great need is senior supportive housing. You know, people don't believe it, but 9.5% of the residents of Beverly Hills are under the poverty <clears throat> line. Most of those are seniors on fixed income. So that's a need for our community. We're actively working with, with to try and figure some projects out that we can do. If you're talking about NIMBYism, I think what you need to do is you need, we, we need to convince the community members that these projects are not endangering them, that they're good projects. For every bit of NIMBYism you see, there are also communities that with good projects are, are going to welcome them. And some of these are the ones that you'll give the golden avocado or whatever the award is to. And, you know, there, need, there does need to be a change some, somehow in that. But what you're talking about specifically is homeless supportive housing. And what I'm talking about in a broader sense is, is housing that is, is affordable and affordable housing is defined. And if you let, leave that open to the market, then as said, there is just no way. One, the market will overheat. It's all, construction costs are already expensive. And I can tell you in Beverly Hills, you can in theory open it up to affordable housing developers. That pro those properties are gonna be snapped up by for-profit developers and they're going to turn it into luxury condos and it's great that there's gonna be anti-demolition or, or anti-displacement laws, but you know, wh why go through all of that? Why not just eliminate Ellis Act and why not repeal Costa Hawkins as well. I mean, to me, those, to me, a combination of robust um, rent stabilization and subsidies, massive subsidies. The governor talked about a Marshall Plan for affordable housing, and yet he vetoed SB5. I mean, it, it, that's a total hypocrisy for me. So we do need to spend a lot of money. And again, for-profit developers will be in the mix, and I'm not saying they shouldn't, but I'm saying if you're giving anyone a leg up, giving anyone anything an, an advantage, there that advantage should go to affordable housing developers. And one of the points that I made was that all of the permit fees, which cover costs, you're not allowed to charge more by, according to Prop 218, um, that those should all be reimbursed to affordable housing developers by local communities, and then we should get the money back from Sacramento. That's one example of something we could do that would give affordable housing developers an absolute advantage, because as said, otherwise, it's like asking the bad news bears to play against the, you know, Washington Nationals. Yeah, so we've been, uh, we've been actually doing uh, quite a bit uh, to create more advantages for nonprofit affordable housing developers. We've significantly increased state funding over the last few years through two different bonds, through a new tax, through general fund support, both for low-income subsidized housing as well as specifically supportive housing for homeless people. This year we passed um, a, uh, whatever we want to call it, a super, super density bonus for 100% affordable housing near transit. So we are doing more and more. But specific to the supportive housing and navigation centers and other supports for homeless people, I, I didn't hear an answer there, but I, what I will say is that we know that tens of thousands of people in Los Angeles are living in their cars, and that number is much larger statewide. We know that at a minimum, one in 20 school children in California is homeless, and the number is probably higher. We have an epidemic on our hand, and all the part of it is about mental health and addiction. So many homeless people are neither mentally ill nor addicted, they just can't afford housing. Uh, and so we need, we need, yeah. We need so much more supportive housing, navigation centers to help transition people into supportive, permanent supportive housing. Uh, and right now, as a reminder, 
75% of the, of the land mass residentially zoned in California, you cannot build supportive housing because it's zoned only for single family and SB 50 will change that. Uh, but we do, uh, it's, it, yes, of course, you always want to work with the local community, but the local community should not have a veto about whether homeless people get to have housing in that community. And, and, we have, and we've been passing legislation to do that. I authored a bill this year that got passed as part of the budget to streamline navigation center approvals. No, dis, no conditional use, no discretionary appeals on it. Uh, David Chu, my assembly member, passed legislation to streamline supportive housing. SB 35, which I authored two years ago, streamlines permanent supportive housing. So we have been streamlining it. You want to always collaborate with the community, but you cannot give a local veto on whether homeless people get to have So housing. I don't disagree with the fact that CEQA, for example, if we're going to make exemptions for stadiums, then we should make exemptions for uh, affordable housing and for supportive housing. And, and I do think the fact is you can point out to specific instances of NIMBYism, but all studies show that for communities, community groups, when this is a question not of market rate housing, but it's purely affordable, the resistance goes down several notches. And studies show that. I think there needs to be education, as, as Scott Weiner says, that these are not mentally ill people who are going to endanger people, but are going to be neighbors and who need help. And I think that is one thing. Uh, but as said, I think to leave it to the market to, to solve everything, I don't think that that's a successful. Uh, I, I think we need to, as said, increase uh, subsidies at a substantial level, and we need to give additional advantages to affordable housing developers and nonprofits. Because, as said, I will make a distinction between nonprofit affordable housing developers and for profit developers. So, and I do believe community groups do it. And I, I, I want to switch gears a little bit. Can I just say one thing, Matt? Sure. Um, the, again, I know we, we tend to, in politics, talk in the extremes. To suggest that SB 50 or anything else that we're doing in Sacramento is, quote, just leaving it to the market. Uh, it's just not true. Housing and land use is one of the most hyper-regulated situations in any uh, area. Uh, and SB 50 has, there are so many constraints around demolition and tenant protections and affordability requirements uh, and, and, and deferring to local height limits for the most part and local setbacks and design standards. Uh, so to, to, to suggest that this bill or any other bill out of Sacramento is just flipping it all to the open market, that is an extreme and false statement. I, I think it gives too many incentives to the market and not enough incentives to affordable housing. And as Scott Weiner also said, we don't have single-family zoning anymore with these ADU bills, which no one is talking about. There are 11.5 million single-family houses in California. Now you can build up to two additional units. You have, by magically overnight, increase the potential stock of housing by 23 million units. So we maybe should be talking about how to, financing, how to finance them, because to me, the ADU bills, in, if there were an owner-occupancy requirement, I think, and you need to take the ability for, of Wall Street to commoditize it out of there. And perhaps uh, I wrote an article yesterday which talks about upzoning, progressive upzoning taxes for luxury condos because, and, and luxury housing. If you can afford to spend $25 million on a luxury condo, you can, like progressive income taxes, pay an additional 40 percent in taxes to go to finance affordable housing. So I think we need to look at a cocktail of things. But as said, my feeling is, is that it, it's not as extreme as, as Scott Weiner suggesting I'm saying. I think there are too many incentives for market rate, not enough for affordable. All right. So switching gears. This is good. This is good. the back and forth I think people anticipated. Yeah. So thank yeah. you both for doing this. Yeah. Um, so again, switching gears here, we are in uh, downtown Los Angeles. Um, uh, some of the most heated opposition to at least the first incarnation of your bill, Scott, SB 827, um, came from LA. There's, uh, there's a perception that a lot of the momentum around SB 50 is coming from the Bay Area, and particularly Bay Area legislators. Um, why do you think uh, a lot of the opposition to some of your bills is coming from Southern California? Well, there's actually, uh, you know, the, the Bay Area was, uh, has been ahead of LA in a bad way in terms of going over the cliff on housing. We were a few years ahead. Uh, and so uh, the, some of the, uh, I think some of the intense uh, elected official work um, you know, it started uh, bubbling up in the Bay Area first, but 
Uh, LA mem members of the legislature have been doing very aggressive work on housing. Uh, you know, Richard Bloom has been uh, a leader on a lot of different housing production issues, whether streamlining or ADUs. Um, uh, you know, Holly Mitchell authored a very important bill uh, this year to protect Section 8 voucher holders from uh, discrimination. Uh, Senator Tony Atkins from uh, San Diego has authored some very aggressive housing bills. So there's housing work happening in various parts uh, of the state. But yes, the Bay Area is in a really bad place on housing, and LA is getting there. Um, and so, uh, you know, I've, you know, there is resistance to new housing everywhere. So, to, you know, the, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, you know, is not in agreement with me either. And that's okay. We, it's a democracy. We can all uh, disagree. The polling is actually very strong, both in LA and San Francisco, in support uh, of SB 50. Uh, but there's, there's resistance everywhere. It's, hum, it's human nature. People are sometimes concerned about change in their community. Uh, we call that sometimes nimbyism. I just, it's just human nature. People, we all live in a neighborhood, as do I, and we love our community as it is, and people are resistant to change. Um, there is sometimes, I think, in local governments, uh, a concern about the state setting standards, which is what SB 50 does, and we don't just see it in housing, we see it in a lot, lot of different areas. When Senator Portentino authored the school start time bill, which I supported, that setting you can't start earlier than 8.30 a.m. statewide, there was a lot of local resistance to that, and that's okay, we can have that policy uh, debate. But it's not surprising that a bill that sets new standards for local zoning would generate local opposition. That's not surprising at all, and in fact, it's healthy to have that conversation, because we have had a system in California for housing, not just of local control, but of extreme local control for a long time. It hasn't worked. We're going through a very awkward and challenging transition where, not to get rid of local control, but to rebalance stronger state standards around housing. Uh, and so we'll continue to have that conversation. I have uh, spent a lot of time in LA in the last few years meeting with people who support what we're doing, people who don't like what we're doing, uh, people in between, uh, and I really appreciate that dialogue. And we have made changes to the bill in direct response to feedback from advocates and from uh, folks in government from Los Angeles. We've had an open door and we'll continue to have an open door. So just to quickly follow up on that. So you don't think you have somewhat of a Southern California problem. Some of the legislators you just mentioned, uh, Holly Mitchell, we, when she was on our podcast, Liam asked repeatedly about SB 50, really couldn't get a clear answer as to where she was on that. A lot of people blame uh, Senator Atkins for SB 50 not advancing. Portentino, certainly. Portentino from Pasadena, right? Yeah. Um, so you don't think there's anything to the notion that there's, you have kind of a Southern California issue here? No, we, we have, we have, supporters and opponents in the Bay Area. We have supporters and opponents in Southern California. Uh, of course, yes, we have opposition in Southern California, although that's a, a broad statement, Southern California. Sure. We have legislators who are very strongly supporting it uh, in, in Southern California. There are some Can legislators like, name, name. who, there are some legislators who support it uh, who don't want to be co-authors of the bill because they want to just wait and vote for it. So, you know, there is support and opposition in in every part of the state, and that's just a natural thing for this kind of bill. John, did, did you well, want to weigh I, in on I, I do, and I think you, you look at some of the things that appeared in the bill, and I get it, there's political realities, but, you know, and, and quoting Zev Yaroslavsky, he's described SB 50 and SB 827 as a real estate bill, not a housing bill. He pointed out that his house in mid-Wilshire district is further away from downtown LA than Marin County is from downtown San Francisco, and, and yet the bill exempts Marin. Uh, I, I do. That's, that's not accurate. It doesn't exempt Marin. So it doesn't exempt Marin. It does it, treat it, Marin differently. It treats Marin differently. It and, treats all small counties differently. Well, but Marin and Sonoma just happen to meet those thresholds. Anyway, I do get the impression talking to local officials, and yes, a lot of them are, are locally elected, that, you know, that there is, this is the so called Bay Area Mafia that is sort of telling us in Southern California how to live. And, and I think I've heard comments from a lot of people like, well, if this is so great, 
test it out in the Bay Area first and show proof that it works because there is a problem in the Bay Area. It's called Silicon Valley, which is the hotbed and the origin of increasing income inequality. And so there's a reason that these tech companies are spending a lot of money supporting the YIMBY movement because they want the state to solve a problem that they're creating. My feeling is, is that we need to take them to task. We need to get them to pay. I've, you know, before Elizabeth Warren, a year and a half ago, I wrote an article in New Geography suggesting we institute a corporate wealth tax. And quite frankly, you've got companies like Google and Apple sitting on literally hundreds of billions of dollars in the bank not doing anything. And from my perspective, it's not just Cupertino, it's Apple, and it's the way that the state has made it almost in incentivizing cities to chase commercial development to pay the bills and not um, and not residential. There is a systemic problem that we have, and that is something I think that needs to be addressed. And even people who support uh, Stout Wiener's bill have suggested that that needs to be fixed, because when you add people to a mix, there are infrastructure needs, and those need to be paid for. And again, as said, I, I hope we get to talking about SB5, because I will note that, you know, we lost $12 billion for affordable housing by the elimination of redevelopment. That wasn't anything cities did. That wasn't anything that Southern California did. That was something that was done by Sacramento. And so unfortunately, I do feel, we feel that it's kind of Northern California has got it in for us. You know, Governor Newsom eliminated the California water fix, which, which would provide us with a set, steady source of water for years. You know, forget the attitude of people up north towards the Dodgers. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that I do feel that, uh, that, that we down here feel that, that we're targeted a little bit. Just extremely quickly, because I do want to get, yeah. we're out of time, and I want to ask one more question, yes. so very briefly. So first of all, yes. for the record, we, he just identified two things we agree on, that uh, our tax structure in Prop 13 in particular really uh, incentivizes commercial development, and I support bringing redevelopment back. Um, but I, I don't, I actually, we're, we're one state, uh, and whether it's an L.A. legislator um, setting school start times or a San Francisco legislator proposing zoning standards, we pass laws for the whole state. And you can talk about a Bay Area mafia. Any law I propose has to be passed by the entire legislature, including the dominant Southern California delegation, which is much bigger than the Bay Area delegation. So I don't think pitting regions against each other is really helpful or referring to the Bay Area as a mafia. We all work together. I work every day with my Los Angeles colleagues and we have a great working relationship and we have to work together as a state. Are there gonna be tensions on water or whatever else? Sure, but we work through them and that's what we've been doing for 170 years in California. So uh, we have time for one more question and I wanna ask it to the both of you, but in different ways to the both of you. And keep it yeah. short, we're yeah. being very explicitly like hooked off, right? Yeah. So, um, for, for John, uh, I want you to answer, does California have too many people? And for Scott, I want you to answer, how many people should California have? <laughs> so I don't think, California's got 120,000 square miles. I don't think we have um, too many people, but I don't necessarily think that we should all concentrate anybody who comes into the three already most dense urban areas. There are wonderful places throughout the state that we can and should look to quote Randy Newman to make great. Um, you know, I've heard on your podcast, you know, people talk about, you know, Barstow. Well, no one wants to live there. Well, well tell me what's so inherently great about Phoenix. Why can't we, why can't Stockton have a university? Why can't we do think, create jobs in other places as well to create true geographic equity? So I don't think so, but I, I definitely do believe, and I'll, I'll end you with this. And as said, I'm, I'm, I want to ask Scott Weiner if we, if we can get him to override Senator uh, Newsom's veto of SB5 because not one Republican voted for SB5 and not one Democrat voted against it. So you all would have the votes. That was a straight party line veto in line with the Republicans and, you know, that's Gavin Newsom. But, um, you know, I, I don't believe in eternal growth. And, and I will say that, um, you know, as, Don, as, as, as it says here, as Kenneth Boulding said, anyone who believes exponential growth can go on forever in a finite world is either a madman or an economist. And that's an economist saying that. I will add sometimes a politician. And so I'll leave it there. Um, yeah, so I, I'm uh, not a believer in population control. I think that's a very dangerous thing. And frankly, it's none of my business how many people 
decide that they want to live in California. That is not my business. It's not the government's business. People can go and live wherever they want to live. Just like I moved to San Francisco 22 years ago, people in this room moved to Los Angeles whenever people moved here, if you didn't grow up here. And people get to go and move where they want to move to make lives for themselves and for their family. And it is not for me or for the government to decide, We've, we're full, you can't come here anymore. And it's not for me or the government to decide, you know what, Los Angeles or San Francisco is full, go live in Fresno. Fresno's great. I want Fresno to thrive and succeed and grow, and that is incredible. We should support our brothers and sisters in the Central Valley and in the Inland Empire, but we should not be saying, we're full here on the coast, go live somewhere else. That is wrong, and we should not be doing so that. So let me ask okay. you. I think, I think we have to I leave it there. I just want to ask, one, let me just one quick question. Do you believe in the statement there are no such, <laughs> there are no such things as limits to growth because there are no limits to the human capacity for intelligence, imagination, and wonder? Is that, is that a position you believe in? I, I, I don't, can you say that again? There are no such things as limits to growth because there are no limits to the human capacity for intelligence, imagination, and wonder. I, I, think that, I think that we are capable of doing a lot of things, and we have a lot of cities. California has almost tripled in population past a time when people were saying we were getting overcrowded in the 60s, and we're now almost triple the population. So I think a lot of times people get scared of growth, and growth works out. All right, we All right, have to leave it there before we get tap danced off stage. So thank, <laughs> thank you, you thank you very much for having us. Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. Again, I'm Matt Levin, housing and data reporter for CalMatters. You can find me on Twitter at mlevinreports. You can find Liam, Liam Dillon of the LA Times on Twitter at Dylan Liam. One other quick note, this past Saturday, uh, Liam and I moderated uh, another panel on our SoCal Gimme Shelter tour. For those of you wondering, Liam's 2005 Honda Civic was just as luxurious as you might imagine. So the day after this debate at Scamp in downtown LA, we hosted a panel at PolitiFest put on by the Voice of San Diego in San Diego, um, talking about housing issues uh, statewide and locally. That panel featured Assemblyman Todd Gloria uh, from the San Diego area, who is running for mayor of San Diego, as well as Mayor Catherine Blakespear, the mayor of Encinitas, who, um, for a bunch of reasons, is a very interesting city when it comes to the interplay of state and local housing policy. The mayor suing some of her own slow-growth citizens to get the city's housing plan in line with state standards. We will probably air that um, over the holidays sometime. That's a good one too. Uh, Thank you again, and we will be back in two weeks.